Well, good morning. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Terra. Uh, go ahead and take out your Bibles. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. Keep it up long enough for them to see it. They'll come down the side aisles here and, and bring out a stack. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, by all means, please keep this uh, as, a, as a gift from us. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I just wanted to give you a quick update on how things are going in our Saratoga location, our, our new and second location here for Terranova uh, Church. Uh, a number of you have asked me how things are going, and so I just want to kind of give you a little bit of that, and, uh, and you'll see some pictures up on the screen from our first night up there, which was September 9th. So um, as, as you may have noticed on the back of the guide page, my title is Executive Pastor, so you know that I'm going to go to the numbers on this when I go to an update, right? Like that's just kind of how I'm hardwired. Don't judge me for it. That's just the way it is. Um, so up in Saratoga, we are seeing between 70 to 90 people uh, each night, uh, each Sunday night, including kids at, uh, at our temp facility in uh, Waterford. And uh, there are a number of new people that are not from here in Troy uh, that are joining in with that. And it's interesting, most of the people that that left here uh, in Troy to go and be a part of the Saratoga location seem to leave this service here, the 11 o'clock service. That's been kind of an interesting shift here. Um, but we are already feeling the pinch up there in our temporary space. Uh, and uh, it'll be, by the time we get into the permanent facility, we'll need that added space uh, when we are in downtown Saratoga Springs. We'll need that, that larger space. So things are going well on that front. Uh, additionally, earlier this month, Pastor Ad uh, challenged every person who considers Terra Nova home uh, to take a look at their budget and pray about whether or not you can swing an additional contribution above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings to help get Saratoga Springs off the ground, to help that new church get off the ground. And, uh, and I want to give you an update, that update on that as well. Uh, by God's grace, you have contributed um, roughly $8,700 to the startup expense fund for Saratoga. Um, pastor Paul, our stewardship pastor, tells me that Roughly 80% of that number uh, came from people who attend here in Troy. Um, and, uh, and that would make sense. We're a church that averages just a, a little over 400 on a Sunday. And about 300, maybe 325 of those people are here in Troy. So it would make sense that about 80% of that, of that gift would come here from Troy. And, and I just want to thank you for that. Um, it really does make a huge difference in our ability to start this thing well. Um, as a reminder, we're asking that all of those donations be given um, this month, September, as we're putting um, that money then into getting the building that we'll be meeting in in downtown Saratoga ready for a January 6th, 2013 launch, public launch. Um, so if you, are, uh, if you are planning on making a donation to that start, Saratoga Startup Expense Fund, uh, try to do so in the next few days. Uh, after today, you won't hear about it again, and, uh, and you'll see um, the info in your guide page on how to do that. Uh, so thanks for your generosity in that. Uh, thank you for making an investment in the gospel uh, and in the church of the capital region. There's just such a great spirit of anticipation and excitement with that Saratoga crew. Uh, it's always fun to do something new for God. And I want you to know that you're a part of that. We are, we are one church in two locations connected by a shared mission and vision for the capital region. So thank you for being in that together. Uh, let's open in prayer and then we'll get into the teaching for today. Father God, we just thank you so much uh, that you have given us your word um, and that when we open it up, you seem to do unique things uh, through us and in us. When we come together and we humble ourselves before your holy word, 
you do things in us. You, you craft us into the people that you want us to be. And I pray that we would be open and ready for that today. Uh, that we would be ready for your Holy Spirit to reach into our souls and to change us, to show us things that we need to see, to, to build us into the church that you want. God, I pray that you would do that in us today. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> so we are... Uh, several weeks into our fall series called Ancient Upgrade. Uh, and we are tracing out what it means to be a modern church um, that is also, as we say here at Terra, historically informed. And today we're looking at the biblical concept of covenant. And you know, um, there's that uh, uh, Lord of the Rings book series that's, you know, there's a bunch of books and then there's a bunch of movies and then uh, Peter Jackson is making The Hobbit into like, I think he's stretching it into... I don't know, 28 or 30 movies just to kind of keep us back at the theaters, right? Um, but it's a big story, right? Like the, the Lord of the Rings stories is big. It's this kind of big epic thing. So as we deal with the covenant story of God, it's bigger than that. And we're going to do it in 45 minutes. So um, that's where we're headed today. It's going to be um, a little bit of a whirlwind in that. Um, so as you study scripture, one of the first aspects of God's character that is revealed to us is his covenant-making nature. This concept of covenant runs throughout scripture. In fact, while we refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament, another way of saying that would be Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A covenant is a promise. It's a commitment. We get that idea. Right? We get the idea of contracts and covenants and promises in our culture as well. Uh, when I married my wife, Amy, I stood up before a couple hundred people and I made a covenant with her that we would be together for life. I promised to love her and honor her and respect her no matter what happened. Some of you may have had to make a covenant with your boss. You signed a contract with your employer. Uh, if you've ever taken out a loan of any kind, you made a covenant. So we get the idea of covenant where two people or two entities sit down at a table and they come to an agreement. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for covenant carries with it this idea of being unalterable. It, it's permanently binding. You, you can't undo it. But of course, there's a difference when humans make covenants with each other versus when God makes a covenant with mankind, right? So when you, like when you buy a house, and the seller of that house says, I want $200,000 for this house. And you say, I'll give you one fifty. And they come back and they say, um, I'm not taking a dime under 180. And you come back and you say, I'll give you 175 or I'll just buy the house down the street. It's up to you, right? You, you come to the table and you negotiate the terms of the contract, the covenant. But with God, you have a, a, a creator making a covenant with a created being. So God says, look, here's the deal. Um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we say, thank you for saving a sinner like me. There's no counter offer, right? We don't, can we, maybe we just discuss the terms a little bit. You know, there's, not, there's none of that because God has a significantly superior position than we do. We did not deserve grace. God did not have to offer it to us. But when we accept that grace, we enter into a commitment. God binds us together. We go from being slaves to sin to being 
wonderfully bound to the, to the grace of God. And this is the essence of the covenantal statement. I will be their God and they will be my people. And in that uh, transaction, and I'm using kind of base terminology precisely because it, it doesn't measure up. In that transaction, we become what God calls his treasured possession. He says in Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he adopts us as his covenant children. He gives us his, his covenant love. Now, throughout scripture, there are a number of covenants that are made, and, and professional theologians will argue about the precise number of covenants, somewhere between five and, and ten, depending on how you define things. Um, that debate is really not my focus today. I'm more concerned about the biblical concept of covenant um, rather than the, the proper noun covenant theology, uh, which is more like a system for understanding the Bible. So as we turn to the the Bible and the biblical concept of covenant, our goal is to trace the redemptive history, the salvation history, from all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when it was just God and man, and we'll trace it right through history, all the way up to the age of Jesus Christ and beyond to the new creation of eternity. Throughout history, God's Universal purpose is described using covenant language. Many will find the first covenant between God and man right at the very beginning of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 28. Speaking to the first humans, and God blessed them, it says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God, as creator and ruler, makes man in his own image and gives him a similar type of authority. He, in a sense, shares his authority over creation with Adam and Eve there in the garden. And this, this garden, it's like a microcosm of the whole earth. And it's like a, a sanctuary where God, God's immediate presence is there and can be enjoyed and experienced by man. My wife and I were in Paris uh, several years ago and we took a day to go out to Versailles. Uh, and we spent a day walking through the gardens there and, and they just go on for miles and miles. It's hard to even see exactly where they end and, and there's all these little spots where you can just get completely lost uh, in the gardens. And, and, and I imagine that before the fall, Adam and Eve would be in the garden and, and just kind of happen upon God there somewhere in some beautiful little spot. If the biblical idea of covenant is an agreement between divinity and humanity, then this era in the garden is when it was really, really good. We're told in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, most of us know the story well. Satan, in the form of a snake, comes to Eve and suggests that God was, was not really all that concerned with, with them eating from the tree. He, he didn't really mean it. It's not, not as big of a deal as he said it was. Adam stands there while his wife is deceived. and He says and does absolutely nothing. Eve eats. Adam follows her lead and the world is plunged into sin over this simple disobedience to God's covenant. And it's interesting because theologians will point out that it isn't until we get to Noah that we even see the word covenant in the Bible. And some will say that Adam and Eve did not actually have a covenant with God. But others will say, and and I tend to agree with them, that the reason why you don't find the word covenant in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, despite the fact that you find it literally hundreds of times after this throughout the Bible, is because before the fall, there was no need for a formalized covenant between a, a perfect God and a sinless Adam. There was such a high level of trust between God and man that when that when God said to Adam, listen, I'm, I'm giving you everything except this one tree. You get to rule over it all. You can, even, you can even name the animals. Have fun. Make up all kinds of crazy stuff. Just go. You're good, right? Go for it. When that happened, when God said that to Adam, Adam never once thought to, to say to God, God... Uh, you think I could get that in writing? I mean, I know you're God and all, and, and, and you created everything around me, and, uh, but do you think I, should, think I could just call my lawyer and, and just kind of drop a quick contract? Nothing fancy, you know, just a little agreement. Listen, it's for both of our protection, right? right? Um, see, contracts are not needed in a sinless world. They're not needed. So mankind falls into sin. And God turns his wrath towards the serpent and confronts him with this promise. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the important part, listen closely. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that last verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, is seen by the Apostle Paul in Romans and also in Hebrews as a promise that was fulfilled by the new Adam, Jesus Christ our Savior. Some translations will be a little more graphic, saying that he will crush his head. And so we read in Romans 16.20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In the first few chapters of the Bible, Sin has entered the world, and yet God is already promising to make a way to deal with that sin. He's making a covenant with humanity that will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Mankind may have been cut off from the garden, but he has not been cut off from God. He has not been cut off from God. Well, in the meantime, sin begins to show itself very quickly. Adam and Eve have children, and in an effort to curry more favor with God, their son Cain actually murders his brother Abel. 
God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And in Genesis 4, we get the family tree for both of these men. And with Seth's line, we get a little note uh, that people again began to call on the name of the Lord, even though sin continued to spread. And it's through Seth's line that, that we ultimately get Noah, which will ultimately lead to Christ. And so we get to Noah, and God says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's story is well known, even outside the church. Uh, God tells him to build an ark, giant boat, to get ready for a major worldwide flood. And then in Genesis 6, 18, uh, we hear God say, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And this is actually the first use of the Hebrew word that we get covenant from uh, in the Bible. And it's clear that now in Noah's time, God's covenant relationship with mankind is about to enter the next phase. So the animals go into the boat two by two, the whole family goes into the boat, the flood arrives, it's mass hysteria outside the boat. This is every dystopic end of the world movie that you've ever seen times 10. This is a very bad scene. Sin makes an ugly mess and must be dealt with decisively. And it's interesting because with the flood, you have um, kind of a reversal of creation. In the creation account of Genesis 1, the land and the sea are separated. Order is brought out of a watery chaos. But in the flood, the heavens open up, as does the ground. So water is pouring down and, and pouring up according to the account of the flood. And the earth is returned to its chaotic, watery, pre-creation state. And so it's, it's not just a way of dealing with sin. It's a wholesale reversal of, of creation. In that sense, the flood is kind of like the logical end to the unraveling that began in the garden with Adam and Eve breaking the unwritten covenant that they had with God. So then, in the post-flood days, the story is told almost like a recreation. You can trace these elements through um, Genesis 8 and 9 and find parallels to the original creation story. But of course, the earth, despite its thorough washing, has not been cleansed of all sin. And so in chapter 8, after Noah and his family have left the ark, what's the first thing they do? They build an altar and they offer sacrifices to God, demonstrating that their sin still demands the shedding of blood. And God says in Genesis 8, 21 to 22, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then a few verses later, God says to Noah, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters or by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember that it is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so this is called the Noahic Covenant. It's a universal covenant. You you don't have to be a follower of Christ to benefit from it. You don't even have to be Jewish. Everyone gets this. It's universal. God will never again cause the entire earth to be flooded. He will never again allow a worldwide disruption of the earlier command to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. God will never again subject his entire creation to this kind of event. And you know, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 could fit well right here in Genesis 6, almost as a parenthesis, as we think of what God's creation endured in the flood. Listen to Romans 8, 19 to 21. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so when we look at the destruction and the recreation of planet Earth during the great worldwide flood and the covenants that came about afterward, we're not only getting a a painful reminder that sin is still present and mankind was still very much waiting for a savior but we're also getting a foreshadowing of the day when creation really will be made new, entirely new. Not not mostly new, not kind of new, but still kind of sinful, entirely new. There will be a day when Christ returns and God restores humanity to a new and perfect earth a completely remade and renewed earth. And even the slightest physical and emotional and spiritual pain will be healed. And all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will sing as one unified chorus praising the God of creation. The God who who way back here in the days of Noah just tossed a rainbow across the sky as a reminder to us and to himself that better days are coming. But Noah's not there yet, is he? And so creation itself continues to groan, as Paul says. And time marches on. Genesis gives us the account of Noah's descendants and the account of the Tower of Babel. And at the end of Genesis 11, we meet Abram. Abram's married to Sarai, who is unable to have children. And Abram is a man that God has chosen to work through in a a big way. 
God is about to show off his covenant-making nature again and point us once again on that steady, constant journey forward to the Messiah and the new creation. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the important part. Listen to this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So out of the seed of Abram, who will later be called Abraham, will come the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will make a way for man to come before God, unashamed, because he will be covered by the blood of Christ. Through Abram will come a blessing for the whole earth. This man, who is married to a woman who cannot have children, is the recipient of a great blessing. I will make you into a great nation, God says. And then he becomes a blessing for all families of the earth. God certainly knows how to weave an interesting history for mankind. So then in Genesis 15, God will make another covenant with Abram regarding the land where he will build his nation. And then in Genesis 17, God changes his name to Abraham, restates his promise to, the call, to call out of Abraham many nations, and then he institutes a sign of the covenant that being circumcision. And we aren't going to get into that today, what the sign means necessarily, except to say that a biblical covenant by its very nature involves an agreement between God and man. And here in Genesis, God is in the process of building a nation set apart from all other nations. They are becoming his people and God has big plans for this nation. So here in these Abrahamic covenants, you are seeing not just an agreement between God and man or between God and Abraham's household, you are seeing the beginning of a nation set apart for God's mission, which will bring about the Messiah who will put God's mission into human form. His mission will literally take on flesh and blood and bring about a new covenant, which will bring about the promise made to Noah that out of his offspring all nations will be blessed. And that is something that Abraham can't even fully imagine right now. All he knows is that the God of this world just looked at him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And you read a phrase like that, walk before me and be blameless. And knowing the the sin nature of mankind, you have to immediately realize that it's an impossible task. Abraham cannot be blameless. He's incapable of it. He can follow the order to keep the covenant of circumcision as a sign of his commitment, but he is still, still a sinner. And in a sense, that is something that the the covenants show us again and again. They show us that at the end of the day, we never really can hold up our end of the bargain. Adam, in in a perfect and sinless state, chose disobedience. 
Noah is barely off the boat before he's passed out and drunk, naked in his tent. Abraham lies about his wife, handing her over to another man to avoid conflict. And from our vantage point in history, you look at this and you say, this can't be the best that God can do. There's got to be something after this. And it's not. But we are marching forward in these covenants toward the ultimate covenant that is not based on anything that man does, but fully on what God does. And the only way to properly understand the covenant language that God uses um, is, is to back up the zoom lens a bit and see it all in one frame. So you have to see the Garden of Eden and the cross of Christ all on the same page and know that this is what we are driving towards. This is our relentless march through the comedy of errors that is humanity. Well, we fast forward in the story to the book of Exodus in the time of Moses and God's next big covenant with his people. The nation that grew from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has fallen into captivity and yet has grown strong in the midst of that captivity. Moses ends up leading the nation that by now in our story has come to be known by the name Israel. He leads them out of Egypt, out of captivity, and God does some incredible things in protecting his people and leading them towards their promised land. And throughout, uh, throughout this, he continually calls them to greater holiness before him. And as the people are in the desert waiting to realize uh, the promise of a land to, to call their own, God speaks to Moses and gives him the newest chapter in the covenant story. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the people are afraid. They tell Moses, we'll listen to you, but we're afraid that if we hear God speak, we will die. And so, in addition to the Big Ten, God uh, goes on to decree other laws for the nation of Israel. And while those laws help to guide the people in the ways of right and wrong, and the laws further set apart this nation as God's holy and chosen people, the law ultimately is a tool in God's hands to demonstrate yet again that we cannot measure up. We cannot possibly keep it perfectly. And so this Mosaic covenant is made official in Exodus 24. And just like the Noahic covenant with its sign of the rainbow and the Abrahamic covenant with its sign of circumcision, this covenant of Moses also carries with it a sign. This time it's the sign of the Sabbath. And bound up in that covenant is instructions on how to build the tabernacle where Sabbath worship will take place. And at the end of it all, after the burning bush and after the mountain is covered in a cloud and, and after the Ten Commandments and the other laws and the tabernacle building instructions and all of it, we once again hear God's heart. We see his purpose in it all. Look at Exodus 29, starting in verse 43. God says to his people, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be, my, it shall be sanctified by my glory. Skipping a little bit forward. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. 
I am the Lord, their God. What's he saying? He's saying, I, I saved you. I rescued you. I love you. I want to be with you. You're my people. I'm your God. Remember the fear that the people expressed at being confronted with the all-consuming nature of God? That's natural and even appropriate. Holy fear. So God goes to the trouble of having, having them construct an elaborate temple that gets the people closer to God's presence. And yet, even in this new and better system, even in this new chapter of God's covenant relationship with his people, we see the effects of sin built right into the architecture of the tabernacle. In the most holy part of the tabernacle, where God would come and be with his people, there was a veil, a curtain to shield them from him. And you can't help but think back to the garden when Adam and Eve would meet with God in the cool of the night. And here we are in the story all these years later, wandering in the desert, setting up a tent with a thick curtain to shield God's presence from mankind. What a blessing it is to know that God would one day make a better way than a tabernacle made of wood and cloth. As John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This scene here in Exodus with the tabernacle, it's better, but it's not the best. And as each chapter of God's covenant relationship is revealed, we grow closer while also growing in our awareness of just how far away we are. Well, once again, we fast forward in the history of God's people to King David and the Davidic or royal covenant. In some ways, it's a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant, but there's also a clear promise to David himself. God needs a more permanent dwelling place um, as opposed to the temporary tabernacle that would move with the people of Israel as they moved. And there's an interesting play of words that happens in the Hebrew that does not come through very well into the English. Um, but essentially, David talks about building a permanent home for God. Now that they're settled into one place, building a permanent home for God's presence. And God's, God talks about building a, a permanent dynasty for David. Right, So it's... Um, the point is not so much about the temple as it is about the permanency, the perpetuity. David's rule and God's presence are bound together in this covenant. It's why it's, this is sometimes called the royal covenant. In this covenant, David's line is firmly and permanently established by God himself. And this is why later it becomes so important that Jesus stand in the line of David's inheritance. And when you look at 2 Samuel 7, um, uh, David responds with praise at the end of the chapter when, when God tells him all of this, beginning in verse 18. He says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So with this covenant, David's line is forever linked with God's blessing. And what happens is that his legacy takes center stage in God's salvation history. It's through David's line that Abraham's universal blessing to all nations will ultimately be fulfilled. And this concept of a Davidic king, a king in the line of David, almost haunts the nation of Israel, especially during times when it seemed like God did not uphold his end of the promise. And you see that in in places like Hosea 3, where God says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so we look to David to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But of course, neither David nor any of his immediate successors to the throne are able to do that because they too do not measure up just like Adam did not measure up, just like Noah did not measure up, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not measure up, just like Moses did not measure up, just like the entire nation of Israel did not measure up. God's chosen people didn't measure up. Enter Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And if we went back and we analyzed all the 
previous covenants that we've talked about today, and we put them on a, a chart next to each other alongside this new covenant prophesied here in Jeremiah, we would find that there is one crucial difference that we cannot overestimate in importance. Every other covenant that God makes with man has an if you do this, I will do this nature to it. But here in Jeremiah, it's all about what God does. I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will forgive, I will remember no more. Gone is the conditional if you, I will. The new covenant gets rid of the weak link in the divine human covenant relationship and puts it all on God. Now, it doesn't mean that that obedience and holiness is no longer sought, but rather that obedience and holiness are now facilitated by God himself. In the same way that the New Testament will talk about the circumcision of the heart, the obligations of the law are internalized in the new covenant. But as Jeremiah writes this, we are still not there in the story. In Jeremiah's day, we still do not have the kingly redeemer who continues on from the Davidic line, who can rightly be a blessing to all nations. Finally, the blessing to all nations. What are we waiting for? Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. I'm just going to read this one. It's not going to be on the screen. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And yes, I'm going to read a genealogy. So just go with me on this, all right? Probably be the only time you'll hear me read a genealogy in church, but you'll get it. Okay, so... uh, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Not done yet. Remember, the Davidic line was promised, covenanted by God to last forever, to reign forever. All right, let's push on through this. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikayim, and Elikayim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. God keeps his promises. And that is how we get from Abraham to David to Jesus. And that's how we get to the new covenant. And that's how we get the gospel reality that we live in today. And so Jesus is born and grows up 
And he's both God and man. And for the first time since the Garden of Eden, mankind is able to walk alongside God himself without shielding his eyes for fear. The recreation has begun. And we're told in Scripture that Jesus did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. The perfect sacrificial lamb will be offered up to cover our sin in place of our death. So that as Jeremiah 31 said, I will remember their sin no more. And shortly before Jesus was taken to his death, he shared a meal with his disciples And at a quiet moment in the meal, he said something that they didn't fully understand until later. Matthew 26 tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In Jesus, God made a new and final way to deal with our sin. He wrote a new contract and he signed it with the blood of his son. In Jesus, God kept his promise to David that his line would reign forever. In Jesus, God kept his promise to Abraham that one day, out of his offspring, would come one who would be a blessing to the whole earth. In Jesus, we see a foreshadowing of the renewal of creation that has been longed for ever since the days of Noah. In Jesus, we see the serpent's head crushed as God promised way back in the Garden of Eden. In Jesus, we see the beginnings of wrong being made right again. And Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15, strengthens this, reads, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thank God for the blood of Jesus that takes away the sin of the world. And even though this is where we live now, And it's a much better place than in the old covenant. We know that we still wait for more. We know that the gospel has more work to do. And and that chapter in Hebrews that we just read from closes this way. And I'll close our time with this as well. 
It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ will come back. We live in this world in a time when the gospel is freely given to those who believe, when death and forgiveness has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. But we wait, we long, we cry out for the end, for the return of Jesus Christ. And he will return. Now as Scott joins me on the stage again and the communion team comes forward, we're gonna take a couple of songs to respond to this covenant nature of God in a very appropriate way. We read about, about God's covenant being expressed in the communion elements. When you come forward, you'll be handed a piece of matzah or you'll take a piece of matzah from the plate. And we read that this is, this is God's body. This is Jesus' body. Recognizing that this is a, a representation of that. We take that and we dip that into the wine or the juice Christ's blood poured out for us. And when we do that, we are, we are restating our understanding and commitment to the covenant of God, the new covenant in Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Christ today, when you come forward to take part in, in communion, do so with a fresh knowledge and a fresh understanding and perhaps a deep reminder of what Christ has done for us in the new covenant. And if you're not a follower of Christ today, but you want to experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you want to know what it means to be forgiven of all of your sins and to hand over all of that and be done with it. Come forward and take part in communion and do so as an act of obedience to God, as an act of surrender to God. And then before you leave, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or perhaps somebody you came with that can help you understand what's happened in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the way that it pushes us and challenges us. And we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. God, we pray that you would keep us focused on your will and on your mission here on this earth until your son returns. Pray all these things in your name and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.